Jeremiah 29 tonight in your Bible. Jeremiah 29 will dismiss our children for the children's ministry and um, trusting the Lord that He'll work in hearts and lives there just as He desires to do within our hearts and lives right here. Jeremiah chapter 29. You ever look at your life and wonder why you're going through some of the things you may be going through? Maybe it's a trial. Maybe it's some kind of a reversal, an opposition, difficulty. And sometimes life seems like the backside of an embroidery. Ever, uh, men maybe uh, have seen this from either your wife or, or your mother making something with this needlepoint. And you look on the backside and it's messy, it's tangled. And, uh, but on the front side, if it's done right, it's a picture. It's a, it's a beautiful picture many times. And, and often we can look at our life and, and it looks like the underside of an embroidery. It's just tangled threads, different colors, no pattern, a lot of things taking place and, and it just seems to make no sense. And sometimes if we try to fit them together, we can have a response to the Lord of questioning. Why, why are you doing this? This doesn't make sense. And especially since I'm a Christian, especially since... I am trying to please you, Lord. It's all like a tangled mess, threads going everywhere, making no sense, no pattern whatsoever. And that's how our lives sometimes will look because we're looking at it from the bottom side. But if we were to look at it from the top side as God sees it, if we could see what God sees... We could see that he's weaving and making a beautiful picture within our lives because he does have plans, not just for creation, not just for an organization, but for you individually. And so Jeremiah 29, we see a little bit of this as we actually can run this thread through the whole Bible and see that thought. But let's stand together and we'll begin our reading in verse number four. Jeremiah 29, verse 4, God's people have been taken into captivity. Verse 1 tells us, verse 4, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Build ye houses, dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters that ye may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners uh, diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you. Neither hearken to your dreams which ye cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and causing you to return to this place." For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. 
and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather from you all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. I want to preach tonight on this thought. A new year, but the same strategy. A new year, but the same strategy. Seek God. Thank you. Please be seated. Now it's clear in these verses, as well as the verses we did not read, in verses 1 through 4, that God's people have been taken captive. God made it clear that He caused it. He allowed it to happen. And in verse 4 through 9, we see that he's giving them clear directives. He says to build houses, provide for yourself, have families. In other words, he's saying, you're in a bad place, one of the worst places you've been. But you need to posture yourself and, and, and have composure and presence about you. See, God is saying that they're to spend their time not moping, not moaning about what was lost from the old country, but God says, even in the midst of difficulty and trial and hardship and captivity, you actually can thrive. You can thrive in any land. He says you can thrive in your homeland. You can thrive in the enemy's land. Being a foreigner uh, has deep roots in our faith. In fact, Abraham was praised in Hebrews chapter number 11 because it was by faith that as a foreigner, as a pilgrim, as a stranger in land, he was constantly looking for a city whose architect, whose builder, whose, whose uh, uh, foundations were that established by God. There's no question that there are times of exile in all of our lives. There's no, time, there's no question there are times of great distress. But no matter the situation, God is demonstrating here to His people as He has in every dispensation that you can thrive. You can thrive whether you're in prosperity or whether you're in captivity. And this matter of being a stranger, this matter of being a pilgrim, it's really a great metaphor for what it means simply to be a Christian. A believer, by definition, is one who's exiled from his ultimate home in heaven. First and foremost, we're citizens of a kingdom that actually we cannot yet see. God's directive towards us, his people, is that while we're in a strange land, we're to thrive. John 10 and verse 10, he told us that we can have abundant life. Even in this place that is not our home. In these verses, verses 10 through 14, he gives them the motivation for their thriving. He says, in spite of all that's around you, look at the news, you read the, the day's selection of events, and you're going to find it's pretty bad. But in spite of all of that, just like Abraham, their biological and spiritual father, they were to put their eyes on something other than just the surrounding current events. It's always interesting when I read these passages in the Old Testament, Daniel and 
Jeremiah. And I see that it's the Chaldeans. It's the Babylonians that God uses to carry his people into captivity. And these people, these unbelievers, these mockers of God, they're going through God's people's homes. They're taking away their possessions. These Israelites are standing there watching all of this. And God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. It's thoughts of peace, not evil. I want to give you an expected end. Now, my own thinking is I'm not sure that a single Jew believed that at the moment that they're watching this happen. They thought that God didn't have a single thought of peace toward them. It looked like all the thoughts God had toward them were thoughts of evil or thoughts of catastrophe. God had it in for them or he's punishing them somehow or he has lost his mind momentarily and forgotten about them. But God says, I know what I'm doing. But God, do you see what they're doing to our home, to our families? Do you see what they're doing? God says, I, I know the thoughts that I have. I know what's happening. I know the plans that I have for you. And they are plans to bring you a future and a hope. I know it looks like to you that my thoughts toward you are only that of catastrophe or calamity. But I know what I'm doing. And everything I'm doing is to bring you a future and a future of hope. In verse number 11, he gives quite an assurance. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. The assurance that God has given, that which he's given to really give some great encouragement to the people of God, is not in his plans. You see the verse again? For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord of, uh, of um, uh, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. He's telling them, I have plans. But the encouragement is not so much that God has plans for his people, but rather the encouragement is found in that it's God's knowledge of those plans. Because not everybody may like the plans that God would have. But if you knew God and you knew as much as God knew, you would love it. In fact, Romans 12 tells us that the surrendered life, it's pleasing to God and it's pleasing to us. And what is encouraging here is not just that God has a plan for me, but it's that God knows the plan that he has for me. See, God knows that's the encouraging part. What's the plan for my life? I don't know, but God knows. God knows. So he's telling them God knows so that they may focus on the present. And he tells them now what he plans to do later. Why? So that they can focus on the present. See, God assures us in our present situation by telling us that he has plans for us later. The, the, the encouragement, again, is not in the specificity of the plans, but it's in the assurance that it's God who knows all about it. 
In fact, this is always God's pattern. Remember Abraham? Genesis 12, God told Abraham, I've got a place for you, get there. And Abraham had no idea where there was. He didn't, God did not give him turn-by-turn turn directions. He didn't. If you look at it, by faith, Abraham went out not knowing whither he would go, but he obeyed. Not because of the plans, but because of the one who knew the plans. He told David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that later he would have an everlasting kingdom. Not now, but later. Jesus told his disciples that later that they would have a home in heaven in John 14. And God has told us in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12 that later we are to reign with him. See, God's promises are gold. They're glorious, but they are future. And if you're motivated just by your envelope of plans, what he has for you, you're going to miss it. The encouragement is not to be found in what those plans specifically might be, but it's in the one who knows those plans. See, again, God tells us now what he will do later so we will not be overcome with the present. In verse 12, it begins with the word, well, you tell me, open book exam. Verse 12, first word, then. Then, when you're in captivity and you don't understand what's going on in your life, then, when you call upon me and you shall pray to me and I will listen to you and you'll seek me with all of your heart. See, God is saying to his people, the reason that I'm bringing this captivity into your life, this unwanted, undesired event in your life, the reason that I'm doing all these things in your life is to bring you to a place where you will seek me. You've been seeking for my plans, but you haven't been seeking me, God is saying. See, they become so satisfied, so settled in their religion that they begin to seek after other gods. Anytime you take your eyes off of God and you just are occupied about the things of God, but you take your eyes off of God, it's a whole lot easier to replace God with another God. What God is saying is, I'm going to do is I've got to capture your attention and I've got to get you to the place where you'll turn to me, seek me, so all this is happening, all this captivity is coming upon them for the reason of then, then, then. Then one of these days you'll turn to me and you'll seek me with all of your heart. And that's what we're talking about tonight. Seeking the Lord. It's a new year, maybe a new page in your life, but it should be the same strategy that God's been giving to his people for all these centuries, seek the Lord. But I've, I, already, I already have the Lord, somebody says. I've known the Lord for 40 years. Well, Paul said the same thing in Philippians, but he says, I'm still counting everything that's been good in my life, all but all loss, that I might know him 
And he said that I will continue to count everything that is valued in this world, whether it be money or status or, or comfort in the station of life. All of it to me is lost. All of it you can take away, but give me Jesus. What did Paul mean? Well, he's saying that I may know him. But I already know him. I'm already saved. Well, it's one thing to know him. And it's another thing to know him. Amen. One of the things we went through, we discovered in, in the marriage refresher is that it's one thing to be married and it's another thing in having a real marriage. There's a difference between flying over a certain place in the United States and saying, I, I've been there and actually being there. Somebody says, oh, I'm saved. Well, tell me about it. Well, um, he's my savior. All right, describe him to me. Well, he, he's, uh, well, tell me some of the things he's done for you. Well, he saved me. Yes, you've already told me that. But tell me something else. Have you ever been to a hotel and you check into your room and you've got these signs you put on the door, do not disturb. I think a lot of people, a lot of God's people are going through their life with a do not disturb sign. Except, Lord, when I need you to clean up my life. Except, Lord, when I need some room service. Otherwise, do not disturb. I'm busy about your business, Lord. Do not disturb. Church members who live with a do not disturb sign till they get to heaven. And God says, I'm going to allow some captivity. See, there's a difference between knowing the Lord and knowing the Lord. There's a difference between being in a country and being in a country and knowing about it. God is saying, what I want for you is for you to seek me. Lord, we already know you. Yes, but you only know from the bottom side. And God wants you to see from the top side of things. You don't know all the beauty that is in the Christian life until you are seeking the Lord. You don't know all the strength and the resources that are there until you're seeking the Lord. That's the reason for discipleship, not just trying to get down some creeds and doctrines. I've had so many people saying, uh, my, my family was in full-time ministry. I think we know this stuff. To which I say, no, you don't. Just by that statement alone, when Paul says, my desire, my prayer is that I would know him, you're saying, I already know all this stuff. And I've sat down with people and say, all right, we're going to look at this passage, and I find... They don't even know the books of the Bible. Yet they graduated from Christian school. They even went off to a Bible college. And yet they don't know the Bible. They don't know the God of the Bible. It's because it's a new year to them. But they've not figured out God's strategy. It's about seeking Him. People often ask, how can I know the Lord better? I can say, have quiet time. Read your Bible every day. Share your 
faith and witness to others every day. And that's all good. It is good. It, it ought to be just normal outflow of our life. But I'll tell you the very best advice I can give a person on how to know the Lord better. The very best advice that I know to give someone is this. Seek the Lord. Amen. Seek the Lord. That's the whole point of our Christ walk journal. An hour with God. It's seeking not to have just a time of checking off a box. It's not doing your devotions. It's seeking the Lord. So I want to share tonight with you three things that I believe can help us in this passage in seeking the Lord with all of our heart. Jeremiah says that we're to seek the Lord. I want you to see three things. Number one, we are to seek the Lord exclusively. Seek the Lord exclusively. Verse number 13. And ye shall seek, say the word, me. And find, what's the word? When you search for, what's the word? This is an exclusive seeking of God. When ye shall search for me with all of your heart, I'll tell you what is striking to me about that. He doesn't tell these captives. He doesn't tell them to seek for a lot of things I think would come natural. You're in captivity. I'm in captivity. I think I would have crossing my brain to seek for freedom. He didn't tell them to seek for freedom. He says, don't seek for a quick release. I would be seeking for some kind of a miracle. I'd be seeking for some kind of a sign. I'd be seeking for something other, I believe, than what God is saying should be obvious. He says, I want you to seek me exclusively. It's not me and your freedom. It's not me and the release of captivity. He just said, seek me. I really believe one of the problems we're having in our contemporary Christianity is that we're seeking everything in the name of the Lord, but we're seeking everything but the Lord. We're seeking His blessings. We're seeking His gifts. We're seeking His miracles. But are we actually seeking Him? I was just there in the hospital with Christy for those five days and there in the restroom inside of her room is uh, it's in the hospital. And so they have these um, uh, safety kind of devices, but they have a switch there that says help. It's a button you press for help. Right beside it was a button that said cancel. So I just toggled off between the two. Help cancel, help cancel. Just <laughs> Then I'd look out the hallway and see whether they were moving that way and but it only took me a couple days to realize they weren't moving at all. And then you, you hit help and leave it there. They weren't budging. But I think we do that a lot. God, I need help! Oh, never mind. I figured it out. It's, I see. I see. I, I, we're, we're, it's not as bad as what I thought. Cancel. That's what we're doing. When he says we're to seek him exclusively, I think he's... Inferring two things. One, we're to seek for nothing else. Just seek Him. I get weary of Christians who act and feel like 
They're second-class citizens of the kingdom because all they have is Jesus. Sometimes it seems that we get more excited about temporal miracles than eternal ones. When God saves a child, it's, you know, it depends upon whose child it is as to the level of excitement. But if God were to heal a person and deliver them from a, a station of cancer in their life or a person who hasn't been able to walk all their life and miraculously healed them, which one is going to be talked about the most? The salvation of a seven-year-old? Or that of someone who hadn't walked all their life is now walking? When God saves a child, it required the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. When God heals a body, all it requires is the spoken word of God. One, the miracle of a healed body is only temporal. The salvation of a soul is eternal. I'm simply putting into perspective, what is it that we're seeking there's a great danger of being caught up so much in the spectacular activities of God that after a while we find ourselves seeking only the manifestations rather than God himself. Sometimes we love God for what he can do for us than just being God. So we're to seek God exclusively. We're not to seek anything beyond him. Why? What's beyond him? Having Him, you have everything. What more could you have? Colossians 2, verse 9 and, 10, 9 and 10. For in Him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. What more could you ask for? You should not want anything more. But it also means... Not only should you seek him exclusively, but it also means in this rather seeking him exclusively that you should seek nothing else. It also infers, I believe, you should settle for nothing less. I love the story. We say story sometimes and may give the wrong impression to those who don't know the Bible as if it's not true. But, but rather I mean I love the event of Elijah and the Shunammite woman. Remember, she was barren. She prepared the prophet's room. And as a reward, Elijah promised that God's blessing would be upon her and she would have a son. And when the son got older, he's out working in the fields with his father and basically suffered a sunstroke and he died. And everybody was saying, oh, the boy's dead. But the mother said, well, he may be dead, but Elijah told me that God is going to give me a son and I'm going to go talk to Elijah about this. And he's going to make things right. So she got on her donkey, began riding and, and headed for Elijah's home. And when she got inside of Elijah's servant, he saw her. And when Gehazi saw her, said to Elijah, remember that Shunammite woman? She's approaching. And so he says, well, you go meet her and you, you find out what's going on. And he goes down and, and he says to her, is it well with you? 
Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your son? In other words, he's asking, do you have an appointment? And she said, oh, my son is dead and I've come to Elijah. So the servant goes back to Elijah. And Elijah tells the servant to take his staff and go back with the woman and take care of the problem. But the woman wasn't going to have any of that. She wasn't going to settle for the servant. She went directly to Elijah. And I can just see her as she fell at his feet and wrapped her arms around him and said, as the Lord liveth and as your soul liveth, I will not go without you. So Elijah went and they got to the Shunammite woman's home and Elijah was still operating on plan A. And he told Gehazi to take his staff upstairs and try raising the boy. And of course, he was not going to be able to do it. And so Elijah said, well, I guess I'll have to do this. And so perhaps the first CPR case in the Bible takes place. And, and, and Elijah gets on top of the boy and breathes into him. And the boy comes to life. Now the point is this. If that woman had settled for the servant, the boy would have never been raised. I'm thinking that many times we're seeking the Lord. We want to know Him in all of His fullness. We're looking for revival. We're looking for a closer walk with God, deeper intimacy. And then along the way, we meet a gift or a blessing. And we settle for that. And we begin to emphasize the gift or the blessing. And we stop short of the intended goal. God. So we're to seek the Lord exclusively because having Him is all there really is. Number two, not only are we to seek the Lord exclusively, but we are to seek the Lord earnestly. Notice in verse 13, And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all of your heart. Now the word search is important because it's inferring not something that's casual. It's an intense investigation. It's an intense search. And when you search, you search with all of your heart. That's important. It's a Hebrew phrase that means with determination, with desperation. When was the last time you had a prayer meeting that was one with determination and desperation? We give opportunities for prayer. We give opportunities for prayer meetings and we don't have to give them for you to have them. But when was the last time you got so determined and so desperate that one of the greatest blessings on this side of heaven is that I can stop and seek God right now? We have uh, corporate prayer meetings and there are still people who attend but don't really get in. And I say it's because you're not that desperate. You get desperate, you, you'll call 911 yourself. What does it mean to search for Him? What does it mean to get desperate? It means you're willing to do whatever is required to find Him. Many Christians, we're doing whatever we can do to not have to do too much. Hebrews eleven six, 6, but without faith it is impossible to, to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently, diligently seek him. 
See, to ever say you have faith in God, but you're not diligently seeking Him, you don't have the Bible faith. You have the James chapter 2, the devil's faith. The devils believe in God and they tremble. But the devil's faith are not being rewarded. But God's people who exercise Bible faith that diligently seeks Him, God says there's a reward. Why? Because it's not seeking the reward, but he that cometh to God must believe that he is. You're seeking the Lord earnestly. And once we get inspired every now and then and we start dabbling with things, think about young people, been around young people who get seemingly on fire for God. You don't find anywhere in the Bible where he's calling us to be a, a firecracker. Big bang noise and, and some activity and then we shh, just fizzle out. No, it's always steadfast and unmovable. It's always not grow weary in well-doing. It's always abide in me, Jesus says, not visit temporarily. But sometimes people just get excited about the things of God only because of their position. I know sometimes people have said, well, they're doing this just because they're a deacon. No, I don't know of any of our deacons who are doing what they're doing because of their deacons. They're deacons because of the fact that they were doing what they were doing before they ever got the position of being a deacon. Sometimes there'll be some who'll show this great spirituality and it's only because they have an interest in somebody else and, and to, to display their character of spirituality, they start putting on airs of spirituality. The problem is they're just not seeking the Lord. They're seeking a relationship with somebody else. They're seeking a title. They're seeking a position. They're seeking something that would be good for them, but they're not seeking the someone. You get inspired once in a while, inspiration may wane. You come to a service, you get inspired to pray more, but it's just a half-hearted search. I tell you, this thirst and hunger for God will not be satisfied by a little mid-morning snack. It's something that will be satisfied only in finding the Lord out of determination and desperation. The desperation that whatever God wants me to do, I will do. Whatever it takes to know Him as much as possible for me to know Him, that I will do. Do whatever it takes to find Him. Sometimes we seek the Lord out of desperation because we are in captivity. Think one reason, I believe the Bible will bear this out, for the captivity was that the people had the idea, and by the way, I believe this is why God allowed the temple of Solomon to be destroyed, because the people came to believe they could only worship God in one place. Remember what the psalmist said. You remember the psalmist asking, how could we sing the song of the Lord in a strange land? Well, I want to tell you, the fact of the matter is, you can sing the song of the Lord in a strange land. But they didn't think that they could. They thought they had to have the temple. They thought they had to have a position. They thought they had to have certain station. And so they sought the temple more than they sought the Lord. They valued the temple more than they valued the Lord. And that's why the Lord had the temple destroyed. 
One of the reasons for the captivity was to teach the people, you can't sing the song of the Lord in a strange land. It's not the preference, but you can. I tell you, sometimes we get to thinking that the only way we can serve God is if everything is just right and perfect. I want to tell you that the Christian life works best under adverse circumstances. That's when its power is really manifested. You're familiar, even if you didn't know Christianity, if you were just familiar with accurate history, you would have learned about the Great Awakenings. Our country was birthed in a Great Awakening. And how we long, at least we say we long for the days of not just mercy drops, but showers of God's blessing. What are the showers of His blessing? The manifest presence of Almighty God. But when did those awakenings come? When the country was at its darkest. We don't really need much of an awakening if everything is light and bright with God's presence. We need his awakening when things are dark and dreary. And God is still the reviver of his people. That's where the power is really manifested. Listen, church, the lost can praise God when everything's going fine. God says, you think you can't sing the Lord's song in a strange land? I'll show you, you can. You think everything has to be perfect? I want to show you something, God says. There will come a day when you'll give up seeking the perfect environment and you'll discover the Lord even in the midst of adversity. We're to seek Him earnestly out of desperation. If you get desperate enough, God says, you'll call upon me. One more thing. We're to seek the Lord expectantly. Expectantly. Notice verse 14. God says, and I will be found of you. I will turn away your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again into the place whence I cause you to be carried away. Thank God for him. His fullness. Thank God for His blessings. Thank God for His miracles. Thank God for the spectacular things He does. But those are not the reality. Those are just the manifestations. The truth is God is saying, I want you to know me. Paul says, I want to know you. Jeremiah is saying, we need to know God. The message tonight is God's strategy is always the same. We need to know Him, not just the manifestations of His goodness and blessings, We need to know Him. When I'm traveling with my iPhone, I always have pictures with me. Pictures of my wife and pictures of my family. Now I look at them often if I'm in a lonely hotel room or place of after a service or restaurant and and I pull it up and I see that and it, it, it affects me. You know, many times when I'm not looking at those pictures... It's when I'm with them. It does me no good. I see no value in pulling out my phone and kissing my phone when I can kiss my wife in front of me. That's like going into a restaurant and eating the menu because of the pictures on the menu. I want to tell you, I'm thankful for God's manifestations. But I want something more than just His good things. 
He tells us we can seek Him. And He will allow us to find Him. And we can expect to find Him. If we were just having prayer meetings just for the sake of going through it like Muslims do, I would, I would never call a single one. We're having prayer meetings not because of hiding and seeking one we might find, but we've been given a promise that if you seek for me with all of your heart, God says, you're going to find me. Yes. See, God does not promise to alleviate all the suffering and tragedy in our life. But what he does give us is a promise in his word that ultimately the fake kingdom, the false kingdom that we're living in as citizens will be displaced by a real heavenly kingdom someday. All the injustices that you live in right now, they're going to be righted. All will worship Christ someday. And Jesus will bring an end to all war. He'll bring judgment to all those who've come against his bride. And this will happen. And so this may not change my present situation, but it sure does change my hope. Because it helps me know I am on the winning side. See, what is at stake for the country of Judah is not whether, or, or it's, it's not whether God will act. That's not what is at stake. It's not, is God going to do this? But what is at stake for Judah is whether they can trust him until he does. Future blessings does not negate present pain, however. But more importantly... Present pain does not negate future blessings. The fact that I cannot see the finish line does not mean it doesn't exist. It just means I'm not in a position to fully see what is actually there. But God is here. Even when He is invisible, He is here. Psalm 130 and verse 6 says, My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. The psalmist says it twice. He's telling us that those who wait upon the Lord, seeking the Lord, are like those who wait for the sun in the morning. What does that mean? It means you won't be disappointed. The sun will rise. And he who waits for the sunrise you're not going to do it in vain because it will happen. And he who waits for the Lord never does it in vain because he will always respond. He's not wasting time who waits on the Lord. God says, I will be found of you. I will restore all things that the captivity has taken from you. Now, here's where our frailty and limitation comes in. I've been at this a long time seeking the Lord and my circumstance hasn't changed. It may not. In this life. You say, well, there's the downer to this. No, this is not a Hallmark movie. This is reality. God says... You have every reason to have hope. Hebrews 11, there were some that died as martyrs. They're written in the book, in the chapter of faith. I'd like to be one like Noah 
and see the blessing or Abraham and see the blessing. But there were some who never saw it. Not in this life. And the real issue is, are you okay with that? Okay with what? Are you listening? If you listen real good, I'll be finished here. Are you okay with God calling the shots rather than you? Because he's never had an uh-oh yet. He's never lost yet. He's never had a failure. He's never even had a close call. In fact, he doesn't sleep nor slumber. Therefore, you can sing the song of the Lord in a strange land. Yes, sir, you can. And we must find him in our all. And when we do that, we will not be disappointed. Therefore, an application. I'm not going to slacken my stride. I'm not going to sit down or lie down, spiritually speaking. I don't embrace the life of laziness toward the present or remorse for the past. I'm not going to swelter in the heat of my present situation until I wilt in hopelessness. No, no. I don't turn an aid station along the race course into a finish line because it gets ever so hard. No, 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 no. Instead, we run by faith. We run toward a finish line we cannot see, to a God we cannot see, because His invisibility is not a worry to us. We're running by faith. The Lord's concern is not His plan. The Lord's concern is our faith in the one who knows His plan. So God tells us now what He will do later so you can focus and run right in the present. By the way, since he knows the plans, this means the most valuable asset is not the plans. The most valuable asset, again, is the person who knows the very plans he has for us. He knows the plans. So run by faith into his presence. Let's stand together, please.